Today's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And they went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. As we come to Mark 5, we come to this uh, dramatic story, very dramatic story. And I believe a story that really happened. A story that really took place in time and space with real demons, a real human being, and a real Savior at the center of it. And so we open Mark chapter 5 today to go deeper into this gospel to find Jesus Christ, our Savior, at the center of it. You know, if you glance at pop culture today, uh, whether it's the movies or TV shows or uh, as you think over the last few decades, the pop culture that's been produced, it, it's pretty clear to see that Americans have had a growing fascination with the demonic, uh, with the occult, uh, with a, a bit of darker and darker forms of entertainment, from the exorcist of the 1970s, probably most of us, many of us saw, uh, to the uh, exorcism of Emily Rose in the 2000s was a movie, uh, and, and tons of movies and TV shows in between there. Our culture, on the one hand, has had an obsession, an obsession with the demonic, 
and dark subject matter on one hand. But on the other hand, at the same time, we live in an age that is uh, hardening uh, as a secular age and becoming uh, thinking more and more uh, lightly about the supernatural. In fact, many on the other end today would describe themselves as a materialist, meaning all that exists is what we can see and touch. And so to talk of demons in a spiritual world would seem as nonsense. Two extremes, an obsession with the demonic to an absolute denial. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, it was a book that uh, records fictional conversations between two demons as they talk back and forth how best to keep captive humans preoccupied and away from the Savior Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis talks about these two extremes and actually says they're a great strategy of Satan. Here's what he said. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that's humans, can fall about the devils, demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that's the demons, they're equally pleased with, by both errors. And they hail a materialist or a ma magician with the same delight. In other words, if Satan can keep you so preoccupied with himself, the demonic, that you inflate his status, inflate his power, inflate his influence beyond reality, actually, in your own mind, he's been successful. Well, on the other hand, if he can influence a so-called uh, secular, rationalist, mind, materialist, and, and enlightened group to think that, well, we've evolved beyond the need for the superstitious spiritual realm, that too is a victory. Both can keep you from God. Both can keep you from seeing your own need. Lewis is right, I think. Our culture has fallen into these two different extremes throughout history, and maybe you today have moved towards one of these extremes yourself. Are you the type that maybe believes there's a demon behind every bush? Or that every uh, act of evil we see uh, in, in culture, we say, well, a demon must have made them do that, when humanity is capable of great evil on its own? Or are you the other extreme, maybe, where you've kind of forgotten or don't really think much of a real spiritual battle now that's taking place in this world? Or maybe even here today you think, ah, it's kind of silly to believe in such things as a real Satan, real demons. Well, the Apostle Paul clearly thought we were a part of a real spiritual battle. Here's what he said. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, nor against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, or excuse me, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. He's calling them real in the heavenly places. And today we're going to see that Jesus clearly is encountering the demonic and clearly interacting, interacting with them as if they were a real presence, a real force of uh, spiritual darkness. Here's the difference. Here's the difference, though. Today we're going to get a balanced picture. Not one of these extremes. A biblical picture. A clear picture of, of wisdom on the subject of the demonic and of Christ's work in this world. In this passage today, Mark actually answers for us the question, if you were here last week, the question from chapter 4, verse 41, when uh, the disciples said, who is this man? Who is this man? 
by showing us today that Jesus is the great liberator and Savior who's full of mercy with authority and power even over the demonic. That's what we're going to see today. And this morning, we're going to look at three stages. Three stages of Jesus' engagement in this story to see the, 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 this picture of Jesus in these three different engagements. Not only that, we're going to also find our commissioning, our commissioning to engage the culture with the message of Jesus. So grab your outline if you got it there. Uh, it's a half sheet. Our life group's wrapped up last week, so you just got a half sheet today without questions on the back. But grab your outline, have your text open to Mark 5 as we look at this first stage of engagement now. First of three, as Jesus engages the demon-possessed man. Our first one is this. Jesus engages the demonic attempt to destroy God's image. The demonic attempt to destroy God's image. Our sermon today is entitled, uh, Same Jesus, Different Storm. Last week we covered the passage ending Mark 4, where Jesus shows his power over nature, remember, with this massive storm of wind and of waves and of boats almost capsizing. Did you notice in chapter 5, this has been a long uh, stretch that Mark has been recording of, of, of compressed kind of history there. It's possibly just the next morning in chapter 5. And they're just now stepping out of the boat on the other side of the Sea of Galilee after that amazing storm we talked about last week, probably the next morning. And a different kind of storm approaches. So I would call it same Jesus, different storm. This is a different kind of storm. Uh, no less stormy, but it's just different. A rabid, demon-possessed man approaches them immediately as soon as they step out of the boat. So remember, throughout this series, we're imagining ourselves now we're imagining ourselves walking alongside Jesus, walking with him as his traveling companion as we come on these different scenes. So you imagine you step off the boat with him after that incredible night in the storm at sea and right away, immediately, a man comes charging up to their party, screaming. I mean, from one storm to another, you talk about out of, the, what's it, out of the frying pan into the fire. I mean, that's what's happening here. They just get out of the boat, and bam, a demon-possessed man runs up to them, screaming. Look at chapter 5, 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. The Gerasenes was a, a, an area, a country, a region, across the Sea of Galilee, from the, re, uh, the region of Galilee, so Galilee on one side, Gerasene on the other, Galilee where Jesus did the majority of his ministry amongst the Jews. Uh, the other side, though, this, this Gerasene, uh, it was an area that was a mixture of Jews and Greeks, you might say, or uh, Hellenistic. It means the culture was influenced by Greek culture, not just Hebrew-Jewish culture at that time, uh, where they are heading over to. Uh, hence the, the pigs, right? You probably wouldn't find those 2,000 pigs on that side of the sea. <laughs> but we have them on this side of the sea because there's a Gentile Greek mixture that the Jews didn't eat pork. Uh, not a great place to travel with a Jewish mindset at that time as they head across this sea. 
They come to a town situated up on a steep slope down to the sea, and they meet a man there who'd been living uh, for some time probably in a graveyard. Imagine that. Living amongst the tombs, amongst the dead, just a couple miles away. A man possessed with demons, he's described. Covered in sores as he cut his skin with rocks. Dirty. Naked, we know, because he's clothed later. Living among the dead in tombs. Add to that the fact that he has a superhuman strength uh, that is uh, enabled by this evil force within him. Approaches them. He would have been the textbook example of someone a clean Jew shouldn't go near. A textbook example of someone a clean Jew shouldn't touch even or come near. But Jesus engages. Why is that? Jesus engages. Why? Here's why. As horrible as this picture is that Mark paints of this this person for us, the, the very fact is he's still a person. He's still a human. That is why Jesus engages. Because human beings are made in God's image and God loves humanity and Jesus loves humanity and so this almost what you might call a creature approaches and Jesus still engages him. Even though he'd been driven out of the town by his friends and family probably for reasons of safety, you can't blame them, he'd been driven out of the town to live in, in filth. Think about his, his state now. In loneliness. Uh, riddled with demons. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of the most extreme demon possession we probably have in all the Bible. And yet, and yet he's still one made in God's image worth redemption. He's still one made in God's image worth redeeming, worth engaging, Jesus says. And that's actually, because he is made in God's image, that's actually the very reason Satan attacks him. That's the very reason. It's the very reason Satan assaults humanity is because you and I are made in God's image like nothing else in creation. We image God like nothing else in creation. And so the attempt to go after God, Satan decides to go after humanity. The animals don't image him. We do. And so Satan attacks humanity. We're made in God's image like no other part of creation. What does that mean? It means that As we live, as we relate, as we live our life out in this world, we bring Him glory. Like little mirrors that reflect the sun. Like a little mirror that you would hold and reflect. You know, kids do that sometimes to annoy you. They take it, they they, they do it like, under my eye. It's it's your child over there with a mirror reflecting the light into your eyes. We, we, We image God like that. We mirror Him, reflect Him, His truth, His goodness, his beauty in this world as we live as his creation. We're like him in some ways, it means. We're thinking creatures. We're feeling creatures. We're relational creatures. All like he is, that's how we image God in this world. How devastating it is then now to think about this man. How devastating that Satan could distort so much a creature made in God's image. Meant to glorify him, to, res- to make him resemble a howling animal, really. Deranged animal, more, more than a human, really, at this moment, he seems. You can be sure, Satan wants 
to destroy the image of God in you, in humanity. That is his goal. That is his desire. Look at how Jesus describes Satan when he's speaking to the Pharisees in John 8. Check out this verse. You are, as he's speaking to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer, Jesus calls Satan, from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus describes Satan. And if Satan's demons are anything like him, they too are liars and murderers. Satan is absolutely bent on destruction, lies, and death. And Jesus says it's his character. It's the very nature of who he is. Peter, you know, Peter calls him in one of his letters, he calls Satan, he describes him as a, a, a uh, what is it? A prowling lion. Prowling lion seeking victims to devour, to gobble up, Peter describes him. But all, not all of Satan's attempts to destroy humanity by destroying the image bearer are as blatant as this one. As demon possession. He'll distort humanity any way he can any way he can. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light. And it may even look good on the surface what Satan is doing to destroy the image of God in human beings. In our cultural moment, I want us to think just for a moment about the nature of what we're living in, of what many have called the sexual revolution. I want us to think about that for a moment. How does this relate? It absolutely does. If we're talking about the image of God and humans being uh, destroyed and taken captive, uh, the sexual revolution's been what many have described as a light speed, you might say, cultural transformation that really was birthed out of the 60s, but even in the last five years has absolutely blown all of us away. Whether your opinion is on anything, everybody in this, in, uh, has been blown away at how fast things have changed. I want us to think for a moment about a few things. The redefinition of marriage that's taken place in our culture. The disconnection that's being made between biology and gender. The disconnection between sex and marriage. The movement that's fastly taking the, 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 the front position in this revolution of saying there is no difference between a man and a woman. On the surface now, on the surface, cliches such as love is love or another cliche such as love wins have swayed a lot of people. And even you would say a lot of Christians. You know, how can you argue with love? I mean, maybe if somebody asks you today, but it's really a cliche. It's just a phrase. It's just a phrase now. Love is love. But there is something much more insidious going on. And our story today points us to that. There's something much more insidious going on in our culture. What better way to attack the image of God in humanity 
and to enact maybe a slower, more insidious attack on the image of God in humanity than distort the very design, the very purpose, the very function, the very differences even that God placed in his image bearers, men and women. What, what better way? It's much more insidious. It's much more secretly kind of uh, undermining than blatant. The very building block of culture, of all history, all history until five minutes ago, until five minutes ago, if you put it in the grand scheme, was a man and a woman coming together and having kids. So five minutes ago. Remember that. Five minutes ago. Not literally, but in the grand scheme of thousands of years, it's been this way till five minutes ago. Remember that. Remember that. We think of, you know, and I've thought this and others do, it's just something that somebody does in their bedroom. Is it really harming the image of God and humanity? It's not harming anybody else. It's, it's private. It's there. And I think, of course it impacts more people than just what takes place in your bedroom. What we got out of the 70s and 80s was the lie of no-fault divorce, which many of us have been through. And we'll talk about that when we get to that in Mark even. But the lie was this. The lie was it was better for the children for the couple to divorce rather than stay together. Social science outside of the church has even proved that that was a lie. It was a lie. The sexual revolution loves to lie and the victims of it are mostly children. What's taking place, it's not just something in a bedroom. It's a cosmic, spiritual battle. That is what we're seeing for the image of God in human beings. That's what we're seeing. That's what Satan loves to do. And he'll do it if it looks just like something as blatant as demon possession or something more secretly kind of destructive that we can't really wrap our minds around. Why does this not feel right? I just can't figure it out. This is why. He's taking a culture and he's turning it upside down in a matter of 50 years. It does matter. It's a battle over image bearers. Satan's been doing it since the garden, hasn't he? It's a battle over image bearers and attacking God's image in them. Whether it's a demonic possession of a poor soul here or the distortion of what it means to be a man, a distortion of what it means to be a female, and as Jesus isn't willing to engage those in bondage with his loving, saving work, we have to be too. We have to be. There are going to be victims of this sexual revolution in the next five 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to need hope. Let's be open to loving and offering that healing and redemption we have in Jesus. Remember we used the phrase a couple weeks ago, let's be a hospital for sinners, for victims of this sexual revolution, or the outcast, not a hotel for saints, a hospital for sinners. So as Jesus engages this one who's captive in our text, in our story, let's look at it. It's our second it's our second time that Jesus engages here. He's engaging the demonic destruction of an image bearer. Here's what he does. Jesus frees the captive and conquers the evil. He frees the captive and conquers the evil. So let's see what happens in this encounter now. Exciting encounter. Dramatic encounter between Jesus and the demon-possessed man. So he, he comes down and he sees Jesus. A long way off, he sees him. Maybe, uh, he, maybe he even saw him in the boat before he got to shore, possibly, up from the hillside as he's watching before it even reached the shore. 
and, and this demon-possessed man, he runs to Jesus, the text says, and he throws himself down on the ground and bows before him. Before he even speaks, the text helps us understand and, and helps us see. Before he even talks to Jesus, he lets out this almost uh, inhuman, uh, you almost call it like an animal, animal cry. He lets out this howl that probably would have sent chills down the disciples' spines as they stood there in this next storm. It's terrifying. If you picture yourself there, I mean, it, when it, you're next to somebody that's acting just even a little erratic, it causes discomfort, doesn't it? Imagine someone howling and running around with superhuman strength. Add to that, I forgot, he's naked. So, I mean, that's like, you're just like, you're freaking out. You're freaking out. It's terrifying. But then he speaks after this cry. He speaks. And he answers the disciples' questions, remember, from chapter 4, 41. What was that question here? It is coming up. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. That was their question on the boat minutes or hours before. And the demon speaks from the man and says this, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He went on to say, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Again, as we've seen in Mark, the demons, they speak truth, don't they? We've seen that multiple times already. The demons speak truth, but this, be clear, is not an act of worship, even though the man bows down, but more an acknowledgement of the authority of this one who's in front of him. Just as Jesus created the wind and the waves, and we said last week, because that, they recognized his voice and obeyed his voice, he created these angels who became minions of Satan and now possessed this man. They too were creatures. They're not eternal. They too were creatures, and, and now they too know, I must obey this voice. He made me. I must obey this voice. And so they beg. They beg. They, they, they plead with Jesus. They beg him. As Jesus is telling them, come out of this man. They begin to beg with him. They realize their time has come. Their day of reckoning is today. It's happening right there at that moment, and they speak Jesus' name, a name that, which really is just a full title of his godness, of his divinity. Do you see that there? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. You couldn't get more divine words than that. They're calling him God. They speak his name not because they're honoring, not because they want to worship. There was an ancient belief that to say somebody's full name was to kind of give you some uh, mastery over them or a one-up, kind of one-up them, get the upper hand is our phrase, you know. For whatever reason, you know, Adam named things and was given that authority over the animal creation. To say somebody's name was to believe that you had some kind of control over them. They're grasping at whatever they can because they realize what's taking place. It's an odd exchange. The demons plead with God for protection. Do you catch that? It's really strange. They're pleading with God for protection. Luke 8.31, in the parallel account, they say this. We'll see it popping up. They say to him, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Into the abyss. Some scholars think that while what Luke records that because once they would become disembodied, if they did not have a host, they'd be sent to this place called the abyss, confined, waiting the judgment day. 
these demons. And it is plural. It's demons, not just one. The reality of the horrific state of this man comes into view here when the demons respond and say their name is Legion. We are Legion. A legion was a Roman group of soldiers consisting of 6,000 men. And they call themselves Legion. It's not to say that this man had 6,000 demons, but you can bet it was a whole lot. It wasn't just one or a couple if they called themselves Legion. There is an entire army in this moment, an entire army of demons inside this man staring through his eyes at Jesus Christ in this moment. It's the reality of what's taking place. Entire army staring out. And what a horrific condition he is in. You think about him. This man has been captured by an alien force of thousands probably. It's horrific. This is what they were doing. I like this quote from this guy named Werner Forster. He said, In most stories of possession, you'll see a slide coming up for us there. In most stories of possession, what's at issue is not merely sickness, but a destruction a distortion of the divine likeness, there's that image of God, of man according to creation. The center of personality, the volitional, that's the will, the volitional and the active ego, the sense of a person's self. Those are the things is inspired by alien powers which seek to ruin the man. That's what's going on inside. Talk about conflict. <laughs> Talk about internal conflict. Eternal angst, eternal terror that must have been going on inside this human You, know, you hear these stories, and I don't have a lot of personal experience like this or interaction, and maybe you're sitting here today, okay, I get it, that's, uh, you know, I understand it maybe in Bible times, but that was then. I mean, 2018, come on, does Satan really still want to destroy humanity? Come on, Pastor Jeff. I mean, Robin and I know a Christian couple who are actually very good friends of ours. Very good friends of ours. Um, they're not the type that li live in the extreme over here of being overly concerned with the demonic. They don't speak of the demonic much. Uh, in our entire years of knowing them, we've never had a conversation about that. They don't lean on that side. Uh, if anything, they're like most of us that tend to probably forget that there is a real spiritual battle going on. Um, about a year ago, they shared a story, or the wife did. We'll call them Ben and Jenny for the sake of our story. Um, Jenny uh, shared this story with Robin of something their family was going through. Um, they had moved into a house, and they had had this next-door neighbor. They shared a common fence in the backyard of their house. And um, uh, Ben serves as an elder in their church, and she's involved in ministry as well. And he serves there as an elder. And they've got, as I said, this next-door neighbor. They had not interacted with her at this point as they moved into this house. And as I said, they shared this common uh, fence in the backyard. Well, Ben was in his garage cleaning one day. In his garage, the door's open. He's close to the fence, so he's close to her backyard. And he begins to hear this woman in his backyard. She's yelling. She's cursing. Okay, you're well, that happens in backyards. And then she goes on and she begins to curse the name of, of Jesus. Specifically now. Curse the name of, of Jesus in particular now. Over and over and over again. A, a bit out of control, you might say. Maybe a little bit like what we're looking at in Mark 5. And he's in his garage. Uh, she doesn't know he's back there. His door is kind of open or window. I don't know what it was, but he knew that he could hear her. He begins, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray for this woman. He hears her cursing Jesus, very specifically. 
He begins to pray for her behind closed doors, and she had no idea he's doing this. Okay, other fence outside the garage, and she begins to say, "You're not a good elder. The church knows you're a fraud. Your wife hates you. Stop praying." This person on the other side of a fence, in another backyard. He's terrified, right? I mean, I mean, rightfully so. A few days later, uh, it might have been a week or two, Jenny's in the kitchen washing dishes. They'd had this conversation, and she, again, hears her neighbor cursing loudly in the name of, of Christ. And this time, she's, I, I'm going to pray. I need to pray, not only because I know what happened with my husband, but just for this woman. She gets down on her knees in her kitchen, so the woman can't see her. She's over a fence. She begins to hear her yell, you're a horrible mother. Your kids don't love you. Your husband hates you. Stop praying. The second time. They invited the elders of their church, as I hope any of us would in a situation like that, to come and pray in their backyard between these two homes. And the lady has never done it again. Never done it again. Now, I tell you this story. I don't want to over-sensationalize this or cause us to go be overly concerned with the demonic but to show us that there is a real spiritual battle taking place. How do you explain that? How do you explain someone saying, stop praying when they're uh, uh, in another yard, in another room, and do not see those people? These are credible witnesses now. I can only tell you that from my own testimony. You don't know them, but they are as credible as I know anybody to be in in what they would share with us. I I, I share it for that reason, to show us there's a real spiritual battle of evil and that Jesus Christ is the name is the power of God who will crush evil. He will crush it. Who will free real captives. Real captives. Who will save souls. That's why. Not to give a platform to the demons, but to give a platform to the power of Jesus. That's why we share this. That's why Mark wrote this down. He's the Almighty One, not the devil. He is the powerful one, Jesus Christ. That name alone. The devil's on God's leash. He is not all-powerful. There's not a yin and yang taking place where evil and good are uh, equal powers and forces. No way. Jesus Christ is all-powerful. He was power over evil. And with a word here in our story, these demons flee, don't they? They're gone. They flee from this man after being given permission by Jesus to transfer to a new host. And what do they do to the new host? They kill it. That's a lot of bacon. That's a shame. (laughs) 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of bacon. They destroy this new host. Imagine that picture. 2,000 pigs rushing down a hill and drowning. It would be one of those situations where you go, what would cause that? How in the world could that happen? 2,000 pigs rushing down a hill drowning. And they kill the pigs. Why? Because Jesus even said, Satan is a murderer. They kill the pigs. I don't know whether the, with the man, whether the human will was strong enough to resist that, resist death and, the, and the, 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 the demonic force and the pigs were not. I don't know. But the demons meet their dramatic end on that shore at that moment. It is a visual picture for us of Christ's power, uh, uh, of his ultimate victory over Satan. It's a picture for us. It, it's a microcosm of the ultimate victory over the demonic, but also over the sin in our own lives and over evil. We get a picture of it. 
of Jesus' victory that Jesus does as He takes on the broken, takes on the bruised, takes on the captive, and dies for them. That's what Jesus does. Look at the words from Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, that's us, He Himself likewise partook, partook of the same things, flesh and blood, Jesus, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver. There's that sweet word. We're going to see it in a moment. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what Jesus does for you. At the cross, he became, he became flesh because we're flesh. At the cross, Christ has disarmed the ruler of this age. He's ripped out his fangs. Satan's got no teeth anymore. Yes, he still interacts in this world, but his teeth have been pulled out. And he's casting him out. And someday, even Revelation, the book of Revelation says he'll be thrown into a lake of fire forever. Forever. Never to torment again. Well, the demonized is delivered here and set free, which means this there is no one, no one beyond the redemptive, saving power of the cross. No one in this room is beyond that. Maybe you're here today and you've experienced a dark spiritual attack. Maybe you have demonic uh, oppression or maybe even possession. Or maybe another avenue, maybe you think today, you know what, my sin is dark. I don't need (laughs) demonic. My sin is dark. My sin is so dark, there's no way it's too severe, Pastor Jeff. You don't know if this man can be delivered, anyone can. So cry out. Cry out today for Jesus to deliver you. Your sin, your darkness is not beyond his grasp. Hebrews tells us that. He disarms Satan. He's freeing people. He's liberating people. We sung that today. You're not beyond help of deliverance. Look at our story. No evil or sin is too great for his match. Which leads us to what we see in our story, our third stage of Jesus' engagement. Our third one. What happens now in this story? As he engages the man now and the people, here's what happens. He repels the culture. He repels the culture and commissions the image bearer. Look at verse 15 with me if you've got uh, chapter 5 open there. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed now, thank God, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. Jesus had fully restored the image of God now in this man. His mind is back. He's thinking clear. His emotions have stabilized. He's not like that boat on the sea that they were just in rocking. He's got his will back, his volition. His will is back. He's able to make decisions that he wants to make. His his wits are back, you might say. 2 Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, you know, a new creation. Yeah, a new creature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And that's exactly what this man was. At that moment, he was like some other kind of creature. Like, almost like an animal. He wasn't. He was a human. But now, he's a new creature. How do we know this? What does Luke add for us? Luke says, 
we find this man now sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's now sitting at Jesus' feet under a new authority. I love how the different Gospels add different details. He's now sitting at Jesus' feet. I mean, where else would he go, right? Peter says it later on. Where else would we go, Lord? But I mean, this man, where else would he go? What just happened to him? As he's realized, whoa, came out of this dark fog probably, back to reality. You did this? You did this for me? You did this? What, what other power but God could do this? So he sits at his feet. But you see what happens. Like the disciples after the storm, remember how they responded? They were afraid. They had fear. Just like that, after the disciples after the storm, in the presence of such amazing power, the people have probably a healthy fear. Who could do this? But they ask him to leave. They ask Jesus to go. He, he, he repels them, kind of like he does our culture. Speaking the name of Jesus causes a, a visceral reaction for most people. What a contrast now. We've got the, their neighbor, this is their neighbor now, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and there they're saying to Jesus, please leave. Please leave, they say. He had just taken care of a huge problem for them. A huge problem. The danger they faced from this superhuman strength, demon-possessed menace. You would think there'd be a celebration, wouldn't you? A celebration. And they say leave. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Here's the Son of God in their village, and he made a special trip across the ocean to see them, and they say leave. Now granted, a very large commercial operation and profit had just been destroyed. 2,000 pigs was probably somebody's livelihood there and food. But maybe Jesus wants us to see that there are things in this world that are more important than the material stuff we have. There's things that are more important in this world than the stuff you own, the pigs they had in that moment. A man's life had been saved and they cared more about pigs. There's a lot of pigs. <laughs> but a man's life had been saved and they cared more about the pigs. And that's what we have to wrestle with today, you and I. As we take this story and want to take it to our own hearts. Is the saving of souls, which happened to this man, whether it's in our church or outside our church, is the saving of souls more important to us than our, whatever, fill in the blank, our material stuff? Or other things, or our leisure, or our hobbies, or our comfort, or, or my time and my space, and this and that. Is the saving of souls more important to us, or the developing of disciples, than our whatever it is? Fill in the blank for yourself. I have one too. We all have it. What's more valuable to you is the question than a delivered soul from death? Or do you find yourself, maybe like the culture, a bit repelled by, by Jesus? You know, a, a, a little bit of Jesus is okay. I like my dose on Sunday, but more than that, entering into my week or the, the messiness of being a disciple or the, the work of the church, ah, it's just too much. Or having to spend time with those who don't know Jesus. I pray to God we, at Bethany Church that we will always say, I have time for Jesus. Not uh, Sunday's good, but depart from me the rest of my week. That's not the life of a disciple. 
That's not the picture we get of a follower of Jesus in, in the Gospel of Mark. So what's hindering you? All of us need to ask this question today. I'm asking myself this week. What is hindering me from a deeper intimacy with Jesus? So ask yourself that now. Think in your mind. Not for your neighbor. Not for somebody else where you're going, I know what's hindering her. You know, we can all do that much better than ourselves. What's hindering you today from a deeper intimacy with Jesus that causes you to say, eh, different times, it's apart from me, Jesus. Let's not be repelled by Jesus within the church. And let's take him also outside the church because that's where we end. That's what he asks of the man. Let's take a look real quick. He restores his image and then he commissions him. He restores his image and then commissions him. Look at verse 18 with me if you got chapter 5 open. 18 and 19. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him. Again, they're all begging Jesus. Begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away, it says, verse 20, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I mean, it's understandable on one level that Jesus would want to follow, uh, that this man want to follow Jesus. He'd redeemed his life. And his response, you know, I would be, I never thought this would happen. And you saved me? I love you. Let me be with you. Let me just go with you on the road. Let me hop in the boat with you. And Jesus, I mean, from my perspective, I'm thinking, yeah, bring this guy along. Bring him on the road. He's going to be able to, to, with his testimony, man, we're going to wow the crowds. Get, sign this guy up. Get him in our group. And Jesus says, no. He says, no. Stay here with the ones who know you best and share with them. Share what God has done for you, he tells them. Tell everyone about God's mercy on, on you. And that's what he does. Verse 20 said he goes to the capitalists, it's the cities around his area, and he shares. And what's their response? They're amazed. They're amazed. He gets his commission and his marching orders, and he follows suit. We've been asking this curious question throughout the past year over and over again. What is our salvation for? You know, Jesus, as we've said in the past, the moment you claim to trust Him could whisk you away to heaven right away. He could have set things up like that. We trusted and he, he, You disappear. He whisks you away to heaven immediately. He could have done that. Like He could have done with this man. Get on board. Get in the boat. Let's go. But like the man in the story, He says to us, Stay. Stay. Go to the people around you. Go to those who know you best and share about God's mercy. That's what we're doing here at Bethany Church as we build, as we train disciples, as we teach our children that you saw the teachers up here. We're training and commissioning disciples to go and share. Our mission statement is helping people follow Jesus. That's what we're doing because that's what our master did. He said, stay. No, 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 stay. Share. Share. So here's one more thing for us to imagine. He went home probably, didn't he? This demon-possessed man. And imagine that. He was on his way home now, clothed in right mind. And when you think about it, he probably had a family. Maybe he had a wife at home. And, and, and some 
kids at home. And he begins th- this transformed man now to head home. All right, Jesus, I'll, I'm not going to come with you. Oh, and he thinks, yeah, I should pr- it's been months. I've been out in this, these tombs for two years maybe. Who knows how long? I better go home. I, can, actu- I can, act- can actually go home. I've got my right mind. And so he begins to head home. And maybe his wife has been a wife who's been desperately praying for this husband who is in bondage, who is lost, desperately praying, and his kids have missed him. This, this man who she knows, the town knows, the whole village knows, he wanders, yeah, my husband's the one who wanders to the tombs. <laughs> She's alone with her kids, maybe. And who knows, maybe on that day the, there's a child playing out in the front yard, climbing up a tree, and looking down the road, and like he saw Jesus a long way off, maybe he looks down the road and he's like, Little little boy, that, that 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 can't be my dad. Look at him, he's coming. That can't be him. Wait a minute, he's sm- he's smiling at us. He's looking at me in the tree, smiling. Is it? And he realizes it's dad. He runs in the house. Mommy, 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 daddy's coming. Whoa, whoa close the doors, right? <laughs> he's probably thinking, no, 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 he's coming. It's daddy. Daddy's coming. She runs outside and he sees her and the kids and he, he goes from a walk to, a, to an absolute sprint to get home. And there they are on the front lawn there embracing and crying and tearing up and the wife says, what happened? What happened? And he says, I met a man named Jesus. He's the Son of God. Son of the Most High God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. That's what our salvation's for. That's what your salvation's for. I met a man named Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done for me. And God will use it as he did for him. Let us be those people that are called to be commissioned just like he was. To stay put, be where we're at, and talk of that name. Let's pray. Lord, what a dramatic story in this Gospel of Mark of this man who has been possessed and freed. It is a picture, really, of what's taken place with every disciple who's followed you. From bondage to sin and death to freedom in Christ and the Gospel. The work on the cross. Hebrews said you became flesh for us. You died on the cross for us. You defeated evil and Satan at the cross and made it possible for us to be freed and restored. So give us faith in that today. Free someone today from bondage. Bondage to sin. Bondage to destruction. May they see that they are not past redemption. Let them cry out to you in faith. And Lord, for those of us that do know you, let us see our commissioning. Let us see our call to be amongst the people that know us best and speak of Jesus, the Son of God Most High, and what he has done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.